specific person to be able to read a genealogy in front of people at church, doesn't it? Well done, brother. Uh, If you haven't already turned there, let's look at Genesis 4 together and uh, let's see what the Lord has for us this morning in this text as we continue on. We're actually finishing the first large section of Genesis this morning. Genesis uh, is organized uh, by a phrase that introduces new sections, and uh, we see one of those new sections uh, pop up in chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, this is the book of the generations. And we're gonna, we've seen that phrase back in chapter 2, verse 4, we're going to continue to see it again in, uh, in our journey through Genesis 1 through 11, and it even continues beyond that. And so, if you will, this is the last uh, part of the first story of Genesis, uh, leading us down this downward progression of, of sin. Even last week, looking at how the consequences of sin didn't stop just in the curse. They didn't stop even with Adam and Eve. They continued on with Adam and Eve's children, with Cain and Abel. And the consequences of sin, we'll see this morning, don't even stop with Cain. Uh, They continue on. They are passed down on and on from generation to generation unless something is done. Unless something contrary to sin and sinful nature is done. Uh, In reading this story and in studying it and looking specifically as you heard how Cain is uh, intentional to build a city. And and as you will see, as I saw this past week, this uh, highlighting the difference between Cain's family and Seth's family. Uh, this city in which Cain is aiming to build and um, this family that really Seth is aiming to build, it, it made me think uh, uh, of that novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And though I have not read it, like some of you, uh, many of us are familiar with some of the opening lines of it. And this is what I had remembered and went and looked up and I thought it would be appropriate to read it. Uh, This is Charles Dickens' most famous novel, and he's writing it after the French Revolution, uh, but about the time during the French Revolution, uh, comparing two specific cities, one London and one Paris, and how there can be these two cities at the same time looking at the circumstances which with such diverse understandings of them. And so listen to these words, and I hope they're helpful for us, even considering how these same words could be applied to our text this morning that occurred thousands and thousands of years even before that. This is the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the season of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. 
We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Charles Dickens in this novel is describing these two places, two real places, experiencing a real moment in history very differently. And the same is true in this story. Two different family lineages laid out before us. One, Cain, and one at the end, Seth. Really highlighting the destructive pattern of sin and the the downward trends and consequences of sin in in Cain's life. Um, And yet, in the midst of the consequences of sin and the destructive nature of that, it seems as if they have it all. And it seems as if they have uh, gotten away from God's punishment and thwarted God in his, in his words in that moment. And so I want to categorize these two families with, with two phrases. The first, describing Cain's family, but that being away from the presence of the Lord. We get that from even before our passage this morning in verse 17. If you go one verse up, after Cain was punished by the Lord for killing Abel and he uh, was sent out as a fugitive and a wanderer. In verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, or the land of wandering, which was east of Eden. That verse kind of introduces us to this entire family and lineage of Cain, away from the presence of the Lord. And let's look at, at how this happened, or what happens even in the midst of it. We see that in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, uh, had relationship with his wife, and in, that, in the midst of that relationship, she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now that might not stand off the page to you at first glance. But if we go back for a a minute and just remember what the Lord said to Enoch in the previous passage because of his sin, those words would be seen as an outright rebellion against what God had said. Because when Cain killed Abel, God told him that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer a lonely wanderer among all the earth with a mark on him to prevent anyone from killing him shortly of the days that the Lord had numbered in his, in his book. And so Cain, hearing that from the Lord after wandering and being a fugitive for some time, says, who's to say I can't do what I want in this life? Who's to say what God says about me has to be true, I'm going to go and prove the Lord wrong. I'm going to go and do the exact opposite. I'm going to go and not be a fugitive and a wanderer. I'm going to build a city for myself and a city for my family. And when I do so, I'm going to put my family's name on it. Uh, Pretty much 
screaming out to God, oh yeah? Want some of this? Look what I've done for myself. And so he builds a city. He takes a wife. She conceives and bores Enoch, and they build a city and put his name on it. Now, some of you are thinking, who is his wife? And up to this point, you would be right. We have Adam, we have Eve, we have Cain, and we have Abel. We don't have any other people mentioned up to this point. And yeah, it sounds really weird, kids, that Cain would take for his wife his sister. And yet, that's what we have to assume is happening at this time in the world. We know from Genesis chapter 5, uh, verse 4, that Adam had many more sons and daughters. And at some point, um, Cain sought fit to take uh, one of those women as his wife and to have children and to raise a family in that way. Now, I should also say that at this point in human history, we see no evidence that this was contrary to God's laws and God's ways and, and knew that for Eve to be the mother of all living, that everyone would come from Eve and from her children and on and on and on. And so only later in biblical history do we see uh, that marrying of a close relative, a sister or uh, even a cousin or uh, a mother or something like that being against the law. And, and that even in and of itself being a, a grace of the Lord to prevent uh, sickness and disability as sin has taken it its, its effect on people and on human nature. And nevertheless, he takes a wife, they have a child, and they put his their son's name on this city that they have built in rebellion to the Lord's punishment on Cain. Enoch meaning dedicated or initiated, uh, trying to oppose the Lord directly in that moment. And even from there, they go on and Moses and the Lord record in verse 18 how they continued to have children. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. We don't know really anything about any of those other people except what we find out about Lamech, and yet what seems to be happening is Moses is, is building up the downward trajectory and consequences of sin. As the last person mentioned, or as some of the last people mentioned in this family tree, just continue to get more evil and more evil, doing more wrong and more wrong. In verse 19, it says that Lamech, not like those in the past who had taken one wife, as was ordained by the Lord, but he took two wives. And so you see how sin... Um, even in Cain's life, uh, that was at first um, at least sh ashamed of because in, uh, when he killed Abel, he was afraid to even mention that to the Lord, right? And yet, after a certain amount of time living in the midst of his sin, he 
cared not what the Lord thought about it, but lived in outright rebellion against what the Lord was saying. Now here, several generations past, we see Cain's sons and grandsons um, living in outright rebellion against the Lord by taking two wives, something that was contrary to what the Lord ordained, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 2, that the Lord, uh, in verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24, therefore a man, a singular man, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, his singular wife, and they shall become one flesh. Polygamy, having two wives, was never ordained by God. Jesus made that clear in the Gospels when he spoke of one man marrying another woman uh, either after death or after divorce, um, except for what God allowed, that that wasn't the way it should have been since the beginning, that, that we were to never have two wives, not at different times or at the same time. That wasn't the way that God had ordained it from the beginning. But death had entered in. Sin had entered in. And God didn't only give allowance for certain circumstances. Others decided to take that upon themselves and redefine what marriage looked like and redefined what life looked like. And that's what Lamech was doing. And so you can see sin continuing to grow. You can continue to see what it what it looks like, what a family looks like as they go away from the presence of the Lord, not just in one generation, but in two, in three, and how generation after generation, if something isn't done, going away from the presence of the Lord continues to have drastic effects on their family. Well, he takes two wives and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. In verse 20, it says that Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Uh, you could say that he was the father of all uh, agricultural. And he seems to be more like his great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle Abel than he does his great 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 grandfather, Cain, who was a farmer and, and one who tended the fields. Remember Cain's brother, whom he killed, Abel, was, uh, he, he'd care, he was a shepherd. He cared for the livestock. And here, Jabel uh, falls into the, the same footsteps as his great-great-great-uncle, uh, Abel. Ada also bore another son, Jubal, who was the father of uh, musical arts, if you will. Uh, it says his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe, uh, those who made musical instruments, those who uh, brought melody, those who um, brought joy and singing and, um, and song to this early civilization. And so you can imagine the, the songs that they were singing. I, I doubt they were songs of praise coming from this type of family. I doubt they were songs and hymns. I, I don't think we have many songs in our psalms that were written by this brother at this time. He has a, they have a, another brother by another mother. 
Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. So you can hear the similarities even in their names, Jubal, Jabal, and Tubal. And yet even in Tubal's name, we have a hint of his great-great-great-grandfather, Cain. You can almost see that though he was a forger of, how my Bible describes it, in, translates it, instruments of bronze and iron, when you hear that his name is not just Tubal, but Tubal Cain, you can almost hear the sinfulness coming out of him, that these were not just instruments that benefited society and benefited the city of Enoch, but instruments of warfare, weapons, maybe of protection, but also of assault. And so you have these brothers, you have this what seems like prosperity, a city, generations, uh, industry, agriculture, music, arts, I mean, everything that we love about civilization is there. Everything that, some of the things that we enjoy in this city, in this civilization, we enjoy being able to go to the grocery store and and have all of the food that we enjoy. We we enjoy music. Um, We enjoy instruments that have been made from, from metal and technology and industry. We enjoy all of those things. Uh, and those are blessings of the Lord. And we're, we're to give thanks to God for those things. They should have given thanks to God for those very things. We are, we are to steward those things well uh, that we see even mentioned in this place. They should have steward, stewarded these things well as they were the fathers of them. And yet they didn't. And, and what happened to them can happen to us. Those things that the Lord had enabled them to think about, to bring about, became idols. They, they became sources of worship, even. Um, even putting their, their names upon them as Cain had put his son's name Enoch on the city. These sons are now known as the father of agriculture, the father of the arts, the father of industry, and all these kind of things. These brothers, these, this family, who again is described by verse 16 as away from the presence of the Lord, is trying to make a name for themselves with the things that the Lord has given them here on this earth. And lest we think that's just the description of this family so long ago, let's realize for a second how many people's names we have on things of this world just around us. Uh, Let's think about how easy it is for us to want to make a name for ourselves, even in a group of loved ones like this in a church, much less when we have social media accounts where we're attempting to gain friends and followers and 
aiming to make a name for ourselves out there and people to think something of us that may not be true of us uh, personally. And so this is a temptation for all of us. And yet as Christians, well, let's just step back and remember. Let's, let's just remember our whole Bibles. It, it's not two chapters later when the result of being away from the presence of the Lord and the downward trend of sinfulness and the consequences of sin caused the Lord to be grieved at making the world and destroys the world with the flood. And so these three brothers who became the fathers of these areas of life and put their name on them are no longer the fathers of these areas of life any longer. They're taken away from the earth. Our name is so temporary. Our lifetime is so short, especially compared to these fellows' lifetime. Their lifetime was much longer than us. Ours is even much shorter than theirs. And yet we fall into the same temptation to take the things of the world and to want to make a name for ourselves, to build our own city, to build our own kingdom, to build our own home and, and our own inheritance, and to build our own life, th- that we could do things on our own. We're, we are to be reminded as, as Christians that we're not to be building a name for ourselves. We're to be living for the name of Jesus. His name who's, is eternal. Uh, ours who is not. We're, we're not to be taking the things that the world gives us and boasting in them and using them to build up our own name and to build up our own homes and our own households, but to be using them to build up His name, to build up His kingdom, to build up His city, if you will. The new heavens and the new earth and to fill it with all of those who would believe in the name of Christ. And so see how we, thousands and thousands of years after Cain and his family and his generation and his family tree, we too are still tempted to rebel against the word of the Lord, to go our own way, to make our own rules, to take all the things that the Lord has given us and to make a name for ourselves, to build our own city as individuals, as communities. We're all tempted to do that. And as Christians, as people who have taken on the name of Christ, who have submitted to the Lord, who have repented of our sins and recognized our need for a Savior, we above all, should be not living for our own names, but living for Christ's name. Should not be living to build our own kingdoms, but to be building his kingdom. So consider for a second how you may be doing that. This past week, this day, as we go out this week, consider the words you say, trying to protect your name. Consider the actions you take, trying to build up your own kingdom rather than to lift up someone else's. Consider how we live moving forward this day. We ought to 
use these words as a, a word of warning to us. That if we're not careful, that we too can go away from the presence of the Lord. And these thought that all that they had had proven that they were able to live apart and away from the Lord. Let us never be deceived. Let us never be tricked into thinking that just because we may be prosperous, Americans, that God is approving of our way of life. Let us never think that just because we have our own home or are making a name for ourselves or this, that, or the other, that God approves of those things. In fact, we could have everything that the world has to offer and not have the Lord. And yet, that's not what we desire. That's not what, what we want. At least, it, it shouldn't be what we want. We should want something more. We, we should rather want the Lord than we want the things of this world. Lamech continues on in this way of sin, the consequences of sin, the way of his great-grandfather Cain. And Lamech speaks up. And if you just even flip backwards into the pages, earlier pages of Genesis, um, speaking uh, in those places where your text is indented or, or don't happen that often. They happen here and there, and then a longer section in chapter 3. But um, when Lamech begins to speak, the seventh generation since Adam... It's saying something. It's, it's really the climax of this entire section, highlighting the sinfulness of Cain and the sinfulness of Cain's family and what it means to be away from the presence of the Lord. He, he describes it well in his words where he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Now he goes back and reminds us of what we know from the story that we looked at last week. He makes us aware that he had heard the story of his great-great-great-grandfather Cain who killed his brother Abel. He says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Cain, when he murdered his brother Abel, he was ashamed of what he had done, hiding it from the Lord. And when God asked him about it, he said, I, I don't know where Abel is. Am I my brother's keeper? Not wanting to do it. Seven generations later, we see Lamech boasting in the fact that he's killed another man. And not just another man, a child. He's killed a young man. The word there is not the same word that is used for man. It's describing a young boy, a child. He showed his power over this young child and killed him for afflicting him or wounding him. 
And he's boasting about it, saying that if Cain deserved sevenfold vengeance, I deserve 77-fold vengeance. You can see the destructive pattern of sin just going downward and downward and downward where sin is not just something that happens, but sin becomes something that is boasted about, something that is celebrated by those that, that play a part in it. We can see that at times in our own lives. Hopefully, those times before we came to faith in Jesus and repented of our sins, where we boasted of our sin to friends, boasted of our sin online. We can see it in our culture, boasting of sinful habits, sinful tendencies, sinful words, sinful actions, sinful lifestyles, sinful this, sinful that. People boasting in it, celebrating it, and even demanding that others celebrate it as well. And this is what happens when one generation and then another generation and then another generation continue to go away and further away from the presence of the Lord, never turning, never repenting of their sin and and coming back to the Lord. Sin begins to build on and on and on, and it leads to more and more destruction. Consequences that not only affect the individual who sins, but affects those around him. Just think about the young boy. Just think about the family members who are continuing to grow in sinfulness generation after generation thinking that that kind of a life is okay knowing though that it's not it seems that jesus actually references these verses in matthew chapter 18 after jesus calls his disciples to in love go to another brother or sister who has sinned And to call them to repentance. And says, if a brother or sister has sinned, go to them one-on-one. And if they repent, you've gained your brother. But if not, take a few brothers or sisters in Christ and go to them and call their sin out and bring them back. And if they come back with you, if they turn, if they don't continue to go away from the presence of the Lord, then you've won them back. But if they still don't respond, take the church and in love go to them and call them out in their sin and urge them to turn away from the world and to turn back to the Lord, to stop going away from the presence of the Lord and to come back towards the presence of the Lord. And if, you, if they turn, then you've won your brother or your sister. But if not, then treat them as an unbeliever and seek to win them back by sharing the gospel with them. Immediately after Jesus shares those words regarding sin and calling out sin, Peter comes to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You may remember the words and see the connection now. Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. 
Jesus says that not only does he have forgiveness 77-fold, that we who have been forgiven by Christ, who had gone our own way, away from the presence of the Lord, and have been forgiven 77-fold and many more times than that by the Lord, we too are to forgive our brothers and sisters 77-fold. When Jesus references those, uh, those words of Lamech there in Matthew chapter 18, that being 21 and 22, he goes on to give a parable of the unforgiving servant, well, a servant who owed his master a huge debt, an insurmountable debt that would never be able to be paid if he worked an entire lifetime. And yet the master, in a moment, forgave him his entire debt, forgave him everything, said, you don't owe me a dime anymore, everything wiped clean. And the man went away joyful. And yet he went to those who owed him money and demanded it of them, even holding their life to them. And Jesus was highlighting the fact that this man who had been forgiven much didn't understand the forgiveness that he had been given and was unwilling to forgive in that moment. Let that not be true of us, church. Let our church be known as a church that holds high the Word of God, the way of God, a lifestyle that honors the Lord. But when our brothers and sisters repent and turn back, having gone away from the presence of the Lord, now wanting to come back to the presence of the Lord, let us be the first to forgive, having remembered how much we were forgiven by Christ himself. Let's be a people who are known by forgiveness, known by building a name for Christ, not ourselves, known for being a people who are aiming to build his kingdom, not our kingdom, a a people who are known as being sons and daughters adopted into God's family than trying to build uh, our own families, a church that's known for lifting high the name of Jesus, not simply wanting our name to be known in this this city. Moses and, and the Lord writing these things together were showing us what it looks like to generation after generation to go away from the presence of the Lord. To have everything that the world has to offer and yet not have the Lord And that's not what we desire. We desire so much more than that. And that's why I think the Lord closes this section of the Scripture with a picture that looks very different from that. Not one that is going away from the presence of the Lord, but one that is calling on the name of the Lord. If you're taking notes, that's the second thing. And the last thing I really want you to note down in this tale of, of two cities, this tale of two kingdoms, the tale of uh, these two family lineages laid out here before us is the difference between one that goes away from the presence of the Lord and one that calls on the name of the Lord. 
in verse 25, it says, goes now back to the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Adam and Eve, having two sons, having watched one son kill the other son, and the other son leave and begin wandering as a fugitive on the earth, were left with no one. Left with no heir, left with no one to pass on their faith, their worship in the Lord. And so they, with God's help, uh, were fruitful and multiplied. And God gave them another child, a, a child named Seth, uh, whose name means uh, appointed, to set, or, or even to, to settle, as in a city. Uh, interestingly, quite the opposite. What Cain was aiming to do in building a city with his own name on it and settle himself when God had aimed to make him a wanderer on the earth. God gives Adam and Eve a child and, and they name him Seth, which means to settle. And they're not settled in a specific city um, that they are building for themselves. They're settled because of, of who they're calling upon. And it says that in verse 26 that Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, which literally just means man. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain had named his son Enoch, which meant dedicated, and he dedicated that city to his name. And here Seth names his son Ish, man. Back when Adam... Um, said that he would call woman, woman, for she was taken out of man. It was, he was saying that I shall call her Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And now here, Seth names his son man with this humble name, remembering that they are man and that God is God. Unlike Cain, who attempted to play God here on this earth, and building a life for himself. Here they are being categorized as a people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. Rather than going their own way, being frustrated that they didn't get to stay in the Garden of Eden, and cursing God and doing what they wanted, they recognized in that moment their own inability to build a life for themselves apart from the Lord. They recognized that even if they had all this world had to offer, they wouldn't have the Lord if they went that way. They realized that God's presence in their life was more valuable than all the world had to offer and that the greatest blessing available to mankind is the presence of the Lord with them. And they would rather have God and nothing else in all of this world than everything else in this world and not God. Is that true of you? 
Now, don't just do your generic church, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, that's true of me. Take a moment and consider, is that true of you this past week, this past year? Would you have rather had God and nothing else in this earth that you enjoyed this past year? Or would you rather have those things and not God? By God's grace, many of us have enjoyed not only the presence of God, but all the many blessings that we've enjoyed from him as well. But let's consider that. What happens if all of those things are taken away? Are we happy with simply the Lord's presence in our life? Are we happy with simply our name being his name in that moment? If not, then it's the Lord's grace that he's revealing that to you for you to, even in this moment, not go your own way, but to repent and to turn, lest you pass that on to your children and they pass it on to their children, or we as a church pass it on to the next generation of our church and they pass it on to the next generation of church. Moses understood this. He who is writing this for a generation of Israelites who are about to go into the promised land in Exodus chapter 32 when just after Moses had gone to be in the presence of the Lord to get the word of the Lord as written on the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. He comes down from the mountain and hears an uproar. And he finds Israel having taken, interestingly enough, forged metal like Tubalcane would have been the father of and made a golden calf uh, like Jabal uh, would have shepherded and cared for and were praising it and singing to it and making music to it like his brother Jubal would have been the father of. And he comes down and sees everything that's wrong with, with the world. And God is about to pour his wrath out on the, this generation who in that moment is going away from the presence of the Lord, even though they'd seen all that the Lord had done for them up to that point, delivering them out of Egypt, providing water, providing food, guiding them uh, by his presence in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of smoke through the wilderness towards the promised land. He's about to pour his wrath on them, and Moses prays and asks him to relent, and the Lord relents. And, and as the Lord relents, he says, you go to the promised land. You go where I was sending you. You go and enjoy its milk and its honey and its fruitfulness. You go and enjoy the life there that I had hoped for you there. But I'm not going. The Lord says you can have everything that the world has to offer in the promised land. You can go and have it, but I'm not going with you. You can have all the world has to offer, but you can't have me. 
Or you can have me and give up everything that the world has to offer. And it's in those moments when the Lord says that, that Moses says back to the Lord, if in Exodus 33, verse 15, says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses recognized that they could have all the cities, all of the buildings, with all of the names, with all of the money, and all of the fame, and all of the power, and all of the things that the world offers them, and not have the Lord, and essentially have nothing. He says, what makes us any different from the rest of the world? He said, the only thing that makes us distinct, the only thing that makes us different, the only thing that gives us hope, the only thing that gives us true and lasting joy, the only thing that will last for all eternity is you, God, and your presence. If you don't go with us, how are we any different from all of the other nations of the world? He says, I don't want to go. I don't want to go, God, unless you're going with me. Christian, we need to be able to say that this morning. For whatever this week or even this day faces, when the world offers you this, that, or the other, you go to the Lord and say, God, is this of you? Are you going to be with me in this? Because if you're not with me in this, then I don't want it. I'd rather have the other with you than have what the world offers without you. This is how we as Christians have, have come to make decisions in our life. It's how we've come to act in this world, to treasure Christ, to treasure His Word, to treasure His Spirit, to treasure His people more than we treasure anything that this world has to offer. To call upon the name of the Lord more than we aim to make a name for, for ourselves. And so consider that this morning. Is that true of you? One generation, two generations, three, four, five, six, seven generations later, if your family is looking at their lineage and thinking about who their ancestors were? Would it be said of your family what it was said of Seth and his family at that time? My family began to call upon the name of the Lord. I hope so. I, I can look around and even just think about for a second families that we've all come from. Some good, some bad. Some ugly. And yet I see some of you whose lives have been transformed. Lives and future generations who have been transformed because by God's grace He opened your eyes to your need of a Savior. He showed you 
that he sent his one and only son who bore his very name, his very perfect likeness to this earth to take on our likeness and to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve. And yet to be raised victorious over sin, over death, to offer all of those who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. In fact, that very phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is a a phrase that the disciples of Jesus and the, the New Testament apostles ran with and used as their beckon, beckoning call to those whom they were preaching to and sharing to, saying to them, call upon the name of the Lord. Be like the people of Seth and his family way back then. Don't be like Cain and his family. Call upon the name of the Lord. Those disciples of Jesus, those New Testament apostles, they were just quoting the prophets of hundreds of years before them. In fact, they were quoting specifically Joel 2, verse 32, where God, inspiring Joel, wrote these words out that in the right day and time, They should call upon the name of the Lord. And and Joel wasn't the only one. Zechariah, Zephaniah, and even in the Psalms, it says to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You see, this tale of two cities in Genesis chapter 4 is not just family lineage story. It's not just family histories. It's the the difference between a family who is saved because they called out on the name of the Lord and a family who spends eternity separated from God in hell because they continued to go away from the presence of the Lord. And I'm here to tell you that if you're hearing these words this morning, having spent your life up to this point, Knowing in your heart you've been going away from the presence of the Lord, never turning, never repenting, aiming to build your own name, aiming to build your own kingdom, the Lord in His grace has allowed you to hear these words, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. This morning, consider Are you on the downward trajectory, enduring the consequences of sin, going away from the presence of the Lord? Or have you called upon the name of the Lord once and for all and are enjoying His very presence in your life? And you care not for all that the world has to offer. You care only for His presence in your life and what He has for you for all eternity. I mean, when you really think about the timeline here, I mean, our hundred years is so small in this eternal timeline that's going on that way. Are you living for this teeny, tiny moment, living away from the presence of the Lord, making a name for yourself, 
Or are you spending this teeny tiny moment knowing that you have an eternity waiting for you to be with the presence of the Lord? And this is just a preparation for that moment. What's the tale of your city, if you will? The tale of your life? The tale of your family? What's the tale going to be of our church members? Is it going to be one that goes away from the presence of the Lord or one that calls upon the name of the Lord? When people look at our church from the outside and they describe our church to other people, Maybe it be staff members of the Y or members of the community that saw us serving at the Healthy Kids Day yesterday. What are they going to say? That's a church that is going away from the presence of the Lord or a church that calls upon the name of the Lord. Parents, what, what are your ki- how would your kids describe you? Would they describe you as one who calls upon the name of the Lord? What about your friends? Would your friends, would your family members, would your neighbors describe you as one who calls upon the name of the Lord? Or would they not see very much difference in your life? We need to consider those things this second and respond in faith, in repentance, in obedience this morning, lest we too go the way of Cain which leads to generation after generation of sinfulness rather than generation and generation of faithfulness. Let's pray to that end this morning. Father, I bow before you, having recognized this week aspects of my own life, my own family, my own leadership at the church that seems to be more like the way of Cain than the way of Seth that seems to be going away from the presence of the Lord than calling on the name of the Lord. Now thank you for making me aware of that. I pray God that this morning you've made other Christians aware of aspects of their life that are going away from the presence of the Lord rather than drawing near and calling upon the name of the Lord. May you, God, by your Spirit, reveal those areas of life to these Christians who have gathered here this morning, aiming even this morning to draw near to you, to call upon your name. May they repent and believe and obey again and walk in faith and obedience aiming to enjoy your presence all the days of their life, knowing that's what they get to enjoy perfectly in the new heavens and the new new earth one day. And God, I pray that if there's someone who's come here this morning recognizing that they have spent their lifetime going away from the presence of the Lord, and in fact, they could look back at the generations before them and seeing a generational pattern of families going away from the presence of the Lord, aiming to work and aiming to build up a name for themselves 
aiming to save themselves from the punishment that is in store one day, God, I pray that this morning they would recognize that they can't save themselves, that their name is not enough to save them in the end, that there is only one name that saves, and his name is Jesus, because he alone was perfect and died in our place and rose from the dead. And so, God, may they this morning, because you have brought them from death to life in the hearing of these words, may they repent of their sin and believe in you and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Whether adult, man or woman, or whether child, boy or girl, God, I pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord and that they would join us as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself, co-heirs of this new city that is awaiting for us, a new kingdom that is coming, and that we would all go out from this place aiming to represent our Heavenly Father and our brother Jesus well in the power of the very Spirit whom they've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.